too much horror business driving late at night psycho 78 12 o'clock don't be late i said all right. this greetings and salutations my name is justin lore and i'm liam o'donnell <laughs> and you are listening to episode 70 of horror business <laughs> Today we are talking about two films involving missionary killers. We are going to be talking about 1976's God Told Me To and 2001's Frailty. 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 Bill Paxton vehicle Frailty. My hair's getting long enough now where it's getting in my face and it's like distracting. It doesn't have to be distracting. You, you let it be distracting. Yeah, I guess. I'm just saying mankind has invented certain technologies like the headband. I'm not wearing a headband. The bandana. I'm not wearing a bandana. The hair tie. I might wear a do-rag. It's, I guess it's not quite long enough yet for a hair tie. No, huh? no. See, uh, my thing when I was growing my hair out is I was unashamed around the home to wear any sort of headband, bandana, anything to get the hair out of my face. As long as I was in my home, I was like, I don't care. People come over and be like, what's this weird thing in your head? I'm like, your criticism means nothing to me because the hair is out of my face and that's all that matters. Interesting. I grew it out till I could finally put it in a ponytail. People make fun of ponytails. That's a thing that people make fun of. And I get it if there are certain folks for whom the ponytail is clearly a fashion choice. They've grown their hair for the purpose of the ponytail. Like mm-hmm. That is the goal for which they've achieved. But the idea that a person with long hair must do something with their hair so that it is no longer in their face is just a reality of life. So like... I, well, I will make fun of someone with like a clearly uh, curated top knot. It's oh. like a silly look. If I'm hanging out with someone with long hair and they put their hair up, I'm not like, oh, look at you, your dumb tail on your head, dingus. It's like, I, I get it. The hair was in your way and now you've removed it, as all humans have done throughout time yes. in order to see better. <clears throat> now, a better solution might be to cut your hair. But nah, no, 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 no. That takes too much effort. That's fair. So these movies that we're talking about today are about people who are, they believe they're on a mission from God or a higher power. Kind of like how I am to spread the word about Steven Spielberg and his sins against the world. You're such a monster. So before we go any further, we should tell you that this episode is brought to you by the fine folks who subscribe to us on Patreon. That means the world to us. I often tell people I don't do this to make money. I suspect Liam doesn't do it to make money. It's not about making money. We break even at best. It just helps. Fuck the scene, bring on the green. That's Liam, that's not me. <laughs> uh, so No, I mean we we don't. That's the the Patreon exists. Uh and I I think it's it should be clear too. It's not that we're against making money and in fact one of the benefits to if we did make more money than we do now is that we could compensate people for their work yes and that's the that's the goal i think of the patreon um for those people who are wondering why have a patreon if you're not trying to make money it's not that we're morally opposed to money um well Mm. i think in a larger sense we could be but in our current living environment it's not like cinepunks is above money um it's that we live in the real world and we know that the chances of a bunch of podcasts making enough money for us to quit real jobs is not a that's not a thing it's not a if reasonable it, thing if it happened you know jobless that, yes. is, that would be amazing but that's not the goal the goal is to put out a co- product that we care about 
the money thing comes in because it, a it costs money to put this thing out, but then b like at this point everyone's really doing it for free. Like no one's really getting compensated, and uh, that makes me feel yucky. I don't like that. I'd like people to get money. I'd like people again. I'm not saying someone who writes an article for Cinepunks is going to walk away with a paycheck and be like, well, see you later, post office. <laughs> this is the future for me. Um, but I do think if people are putting in work, uh, they should be compensated for that work. And I don't have enough free shirts to send folks to f- fairly compensate them. So that's why the Patreon is exists and why we want more people to sign up and to you know help support us. And we try to give you things in exchange for that so that you are also being compensated. This isn't just a free will offering. We want to give you some hookups to make it a little more exciting that you decided to do that. Though to be fair, those offerings will not be in commensurate with the money that you give us because the reality is I don't know that anything we can offer you is worth that. Mm. Something that Josh and I are working on is pre- it sounds pretty cool. Oh. Yeah. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you want to uh, help us out, you can go to patreon.com backslash cinepunks, or you can just go to our www.cinepunks.com, and there's a little thing you can click there that will take you there. So it is greatly appreciated to those of you who do subscribe. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Liam appreciates it. We all appreciate it. This episode is also brought to you by the people over at Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations. Now, Liam, if I told you I have an idea for a t-shirt that said uh, Donald Trump is a wannabe fascist dictator and Pat Toomey is a cowardly piece of shit. That sounds good. Where would I go to get that t-shirt made? Uh, Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations. Perfect. Now, if you want a t-shirt of any kind for your band, for your podcast, for your frisbee throwing club, whatever it is, for your hot dog eating league... Whatever it is that you want to get a t-shirt made for, or booty shorts, or bandanas, or anything like that, the people at Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations will help you out. They will guide you through the creative process. Uh, They'll take your ideas, as embryonic and dumb as they might be, and they will bring that vision to beautiful, inky life. And they'll do it at a reasonable price. And if you strong-arm Chris Reject, he might give you a good deal. So, um... If you are in need of screen printing services, we cannot stress enough that Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations is the place to go. So if that interests you, you can go to www.xlvacx.com. One more time, that's www.xlvacx.com. Don't let those X's fool you. Chris Reject doesn't live within a galaxy of a sober lifestyle. And he never will. So, now comes the time in the podcast where Mm. I... I gaze into the abyss and I shout this question and I, I hope something answers me. I say to Liam, Liam, what have you done recently that involves horror movies or horror? Not a whole lot. <laughs> no, okay. Um, did we, did I on the uh, year end wrap up episode mention that movie Knives and Skin? I don't think so. I don't think I did. I started but did not finish in time for that episode. Okay. A film called Knives and Skin, which has been getting a lot of play among some people that we are good friends with uh, on the internet, including um, our friend uh, Ashley over at um, uh, Graveyard Shift Sisters uh, and uh, 
I think Brian Christopher talked about it, but a few people have been hyped on it. And it's a, you know, it's a loose, I, it's definitely a horror film, but it's more than that. It's in the sense that it's, it's a film that's also like manages to be a teen drama as well. Okay. Um, it's a film about <coughs> a young girl goes missing. Okay. Most likely murdered. And the town is kind of responding to that, which all sounds very sappy. Mm-hmm. Only the emotional tenor of the film is similar to a film like um, um, The Killing of a Sacred Deer or The Lobster, where okay. the dialogue is pointing towards something going on with these characters, but not all of it feels rational. It feels vaguely surreal. Um, and there's musical moments and the character relationships are all over the place and um there's even a moment where uh not only are the students all singing the same song in the various parts of their lives but the dead girl is also singing uh it's it's a film that smashes together a bunch of genres so i you know it's definitely to me a horror film but it is not uh, a film, I think, that's trying to scare you very much. Okay. I don't want to say too much more about it. I, what I will say is that if you're into weird stuff, uh, something that has a bit of a teen angle, something that feels very fresh and new in what it is, uh, I just want to go ahead and recommend you check out Knives and Skin. Uh, I thought it was very good. Um, I also watched, uh, this was specifically for... And so you can consider this a bit of a plug for a new show on the network with me and Doug Tilly, Cinema Smorgasbord, which is a show that is basically a lot of different shows. Sort of me and Doug responding to the fact that we couldn't pick one thing to talk about. So we just made a bunch of different concepts. And then each episode, it's that podcast. Hmm. So uh, one of the podcasts that's coming out very soon is called You Don't Know Dick, The Life and Work of Dick Miller. How many episodes? That's just going to be one episode. No, no, no. All of these will have multiple episodes until we get tired of doing them. Okay. So forever and ever. It's just when you tune in to the next episode of Cinema Smorgasbord, it might not be Dick Miller. It might be the Jackie Chan show. It might be the Forgotten Gems show where we look at things that played uh, film festivals back in the day and sort of say, like, do we still talk about this movie? Do we not still talk about this movie? How does it sort of affect us now whatever so there's a bunch of concepts basically we're going through so for the first episode of the dick miller one uh i watched a little movie called the terror which is a roger corman film starring jack nicholson and dick miller uh it was during roger corman's whole poe time period Mm. but it's not a poe story it's filmed on all the sets he used for his various poe films but it's not poe at all and in fact it's a weird movie um so uh, it starts Jack. It's a period film starring Jack Nicholson, Boris Karloff, Dick Miller, and a few other people whose names I didn't recognize. Um, it is a huge mess of a film. In fact, I don't even know I could recommend it except for as a fun thing. You know, it, it's not a high quality movie. It's definitely one of the uh, not as well executed Roger Corman films. Something he probably did because. The actors owed him work, and he <laughs> had sets, and so we're just going to do this thing. Um, but it's kind of fun in that, you know, Jack Nicholson trying to be a French soldier from the 1800s. Oh, man, this is a poor casting choice. And then to have the manservant, also supposed to be set in period time, to be Dick Miller. 
So you've got Jack Nicholson who's just like, Baron, I, I uh, uh, you know, he just can't get to that like Shakespearean tone. Yeah, yeah. And then you got Dick Miller who literally has a New York accent in the film. The thing about the Baron, uh, uh, you know, and then Boris Karloff, Boris Karloff, who feels like he's being teleported or hologrammed into the film from a legit period where he's doing the ba- all I have to say is his character is the Baron and you know what Boris Karloff is doing yeah but here's the th- when did Boris Karloff die <laughs> um, so to give you an idea of where this falls in Boris Karloff's career um, you know my, a lot of people know the last movie Boris Karloff did which is a very important movie I think for the history of horror is a little film called Targets in which Boris Karloff is a washed playing a washed up actor who did horror movies and the movie that they use in Targets a lot to represent the depths of his despair as a washed up actor is the terror they use clips from the terror in the movie Targets damn <laughs> um, anyways I've never seen it um, there is a good copy of it. I actually watched the worst version available because it's in the public domain, uh, so I could watch it for free. And um, I don't recommend that unless you're stoked on things that are washed out and hard to see. Uh, but in a way, it kind of hit my nostalgia because it, it reminded me of something that would play on uh, UHF stations when I was a kid, you know, when they would play uh, things that were in the public domain that no one cared about anymore. Um, so it's that sort of thing. I will say, if you really want to get into weirdness, there's a version of this movie that was released only in Europe in which Dick Miller filmed new scenes <laughs> that were injected into the film to form a new plot. And uh, that was in like 1995. And it was only released in Europe. And from what I understand, I didn't watch it. Doug did. He said it was very weird. Uh, and probably didn't make the movie better but again if you're watching this movie for the lol yeah the worst possible version might actually be the version you want to watch and again dick miller in a period film set in europe just a poor choice it's supposed to be france in yeah. the 1800s and my man is just I mean, but again it's not that his performance is bad he's just you know no one's saying to him could you tone down the new yorkiness just a little bit <laughs> anyway uh, so those are the two main hard things. The other thing I will say is, uh, you know, I just got back from San Francisco. While I was in San Francisco, I went to a bookstore called Borderlands mm. in the Mission. Uh, if you are anywhere around San Francisco, I would recommend going to this bookstore. It is a fantasy, sci-fi, horror-only bookstore. Uh, I think they might have mystery, too. But that's it. Um, their collection is beyond even me to appreciate especially when it comes to fantasy, which is a realm I kind of know a little bit about. And then I was around going, there's stuff here that we don't have at the library. Like, it's just a pretty impressive collection. And while I was there, there's a, a couple books that have been released, which are H.P. Lovecraft tales told in the manner of and drawn in the manner of Dr. Seuss. Uh, uh, I picked up the, the Dagon one. Uh, there's also a uh, Call of Cthulhu. And I think they have more coming out. Here's the question. And I, I mean, I could just go upstairs right now and go read this myself. Right. How did he tell the tale of that? Da- is it an adaption of the short story, Dagon? Because this, the, the Stuart, I remember I first saw the Gordon film before I read the short story. And the short story is like a guy wakes up on an island. He's like, this really sucks. Where am I? There are puffy shoggoths and eels in the water. And then it's just, that's it. Um, my understanding 
And again, I haven't read the short story, so I'm maybe not the person to ask. Okay. However, my understanding is that it is somewhat similar to the short story. Uh, the uh, guy at the bookstore felt like it was mildly upsetting, even as a children's book. <laughs> and I don't even think it's meant for children. That it's, you know, there's a lot of time in the boat for this guy. There's a lot of time. It's the story of a tortured morphine addicted man who relates an incident that occurred during his services as an officer during World War One. Yeah. That seems to be what the what the book is about as well. Uh and you know, it's it's interesting. I uh I think I recommend it. Um yeah, so that's that's about it. Uh the only thing I will say is today I checked out the trailer, the teaser trailer for Spirals, what it's called? Spirals. Colon, Spirals. The Book of Saw. The Book of Saw. Everyone mixed, we were just talking about it, and I felt, feel like it'd be worth mentioning on the show. I have, you know, I have some mixed emotions about that. Um, yeah, so I have mixed emotions about this. I'm not a big Saw fan. However, a Chris Tucker horror movie doesn't sound like a bad idea to me. Uh, Chris Rock. Oh, my bad. I wish it would. <laughs> can you imagine a Chris Tucker horror movie? Not just Chris Tucker, but... Ruby fucking Rod in a horror movie. Oh that would be amazing. <laughs> You're right. Chris Rock. And this is something Chris Rock has talked about not that long ago. He talked about wanting to do horror. Uh, is he a horror fan? I, I don't I don't know. Yeah, I mean, he's talked about wanting to be in horror films. Okay. Now, I, does that make him a full fan? I don't know, but I'm not surprised if he is. All I know is, on one hand, the trailer doesn't look bad. It's a little, no. predict- it's a little predictable, you know? Um, there's a couple scenes where I'm like, oh, right, this is a Saw movie. Um, but... Uh, still, I just like him in it. Now, I wonder if it's a little overkill to also have Samuel L. Jackson. Here's what I was going to say: the Samuel L. Jackson character. The thing but. I like about it, and the thing I hate about it, was there's a scene, there's a, there's a brief, yeah, scene. It's a fucking minute and a half long. Um, there's a shot where like Sam Jackson's like, looking down like this dark industrial hallway, and he's like, "You want to play a game, motherfucker?" And it's like, hmm, Sam Jackson's in this movie. <laughs> you know, like it, and it's that's that's. It, here's the thing: Sam Jackson has been in a number of horror films. Yeah, and some of my favorite performances of Sam Jackson in any films is when he's not doing the Samuel L. Jackson character. Yeah, especially for a horror movie. However, there is some part of me that kind of thinks, and this is something we haven't talked about too much, but um, you know, uh, as horror noir has pointed out, the idea that horror movies are for white people. I mean, they're, I think they're often made for white people, but that horror audiences are white people is like obviously not true. Yeah. A lot of people of, from different backgrounds and, and anyone who knows anything about hip hop knows a lot of folks uh, in urban settings watch horror films. Uh, but there is this attitude sometimes when you're watching a horror film and if you've been in the some of the, my favorite kinds of audiences, they'll let you know that um, a lot, in a lot of horror movies, white people do dumb shit. And so sometimes with black audiences, they're watching movie going, what the fuck? Why are you doing that? Just leave. Just go. Why are you doing this thing? So the idea of Sam Jackson not falling into all of the tricks and traps of uh, a usual Saw movie, something about that kind of you know appeals to me. Do I need him to say motherfucker since he says motherfucker all the time in every role? No, I don't need that part. But that idea of it. However, I also suspect... Since whoever made this movie, as much as they wanted Chris Rock, they wanted Samuel Jackson in it, they still wanted it to be a Saw movie. So my guess is 
despite that line, he's still going to end up in a deadly trap. Well, I saw something on Twitter today that posited that Sam Jackson is the is Jigsaw and Chris Tucker is in some way related to Danny Glover's character from the first one and that Sam Jackson is probably going to do like a Steven Seagal and executive decision and it's going to be marketed as like a Sam Jackson film and then he's going to be in it for 15 minutes and then is it weird that I'm okay with that not at all I Uh, actually think that would be interesting using my example I actually think if uh, executive decision had kept Steven Seagal alive spoiler for a fucking 30 year old movie it would have been not that good yeah, but because they kill him, it turns into like a kind of fun, yeah, really intense action movie. So I don't know. I mean, I, like I'm not in a rush to see it because I'm not crazy about the Saw films. I need. Oh, here's the thing. If I had the time to do these, you know, friends talk about like I'm doing a full watch through of whatever. I have trouble just watching the movies for my podcast. So the idea yeah. of like, yo, I'm gonna take a weekend and just catch up on all of the whatever movies. That's not a part of my life. But if it was, I would do a Saw watch through. I've only really paid attention to the first one. I actually... mm, mm, uh, That ending where Lee Whannell is like trapped and like fucking screaming and pleading for his life. Yeah. that The rest of that movie is sort of like, okay, it's not bad, but that ending really gets under my skin. I Well, yeah, I was going to say, I think the first one is good, and I'm glad that I've seen it. I've tried a couple of times to watch two and three, and I've never been pulled in enough to actually like focus on them but i also wasn't commi- i wasn't like i'm doing it i was just like well let's throw this on let's see what we think and uh you know this is i think grad school i tried to watch saw two and was like you know what i'm 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 good i'm fine <laughs> with this and saw three it was uh i think i was at a party or it was people were around so i wasn't really paying attention to it mm. so i think uh, a watch through might be in order it's just i'll just be honest with y'all like the idea of being like Let's commit a whole bunch of days to just watching Saw movies. It's like not appealing. Oh man, you know how many Truffaut movies I haven't watched. You know what I yeah. mean. You know how many fucking Hitchcock movies I haven't watched. I'm gonna sit here for these Saw movies. Nah, I'm good, man. Do you know how many minutes of sleep I haven't taken? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, let alone the fact that like I have a child and yeah, there's I'm not writing and all that kind of stuff. So that's about it for me, horror wise. Um, you know, if you guys are stoked on. Uh, this next song movie let us know <laughs> uh i would like to for a moment talk about um i don't know if i've talked about it on the show yet uh hbo's the outsider is oh i've been watching it i'm almost next caught level terrifying it's very good um it I, I will say have you read the book yes i haven't read the book i actually think the show is better having not read the book because I made the mistake of like, oh, what's going on with it? Let me just look at it what and totally had uh not the ending, but like what's going on spoiled that for second me. episode. Yeah, it, it's the same way how um I don't know, but even knowing what was gonna happen in the second episode sure. was still heartbreaking. Right. And this was actually after the second episode. It was after the second episode. I was like, what is this show even really about? And so I was like, well, let me see here. I'll look at the book review. Oh, well, that's uh, it's a pretty big reveal in, yeah. the, in the world of the show. Yeah. So I've been able to keep that on the DL, not, not let Suze know because we're watching it together. But um, I think the way that this show is done, it's actually better this way where you don't you're not sure exactly what's happening and the slow reveal it's like really selling you on it yeah opposed to just putting it out there it's also uh it's also fucking terrifying 
there, you know, a lot of the scenes where they talk about certain things, which is very vague, but that's how it is. Uh, it is so bone chillingly unsettling in a way that few things are. Um, it's just super effective television and it's very moody. It's, it, it's very, uh, it's just fucking good. It's just scary. It's scary television. I also want to talk about an episode I watched last night. I'm very proud of myself for doing this. I watched uh, Project Blue Book is back on, on the History Channel. And uh, they did an episode last night that was very horror-themed involving the Lovett Cunningham case. I won't tell you what it is. Just go Google it. Lovett is spelled. Eh, just look it up. Um, that was very good. You know, in, in, in the subject material, like I said, it was presented as a horror film, so it was very scary. Uh, movies I've seen recently, I saw Richard Stanley's The Color Out of Space. It was really good. Um, some of the acting in the first act is a little not quite there for me. Okay. There's a lot of like little kid actor tropes, like the close-ups of the kid like whispering, like, there's something in the well. You're like, okay, this is 2003, and it's like, you know, it's dumb. But then like Nick Cage is just awesome. There's a lot of stuff that's very... Uh, I think Richard Stanley took the sort of vagueness of the Lovecraft story and applied it through like an eighties body horror lens. Sure. Um, there's a lot of things that reminded me of the thing, which I guess makes sense because that was, had a very Lovecraft feel to it. Uh, and plus it had a, a black man or had a white woman swooning over a black man. So I was watching that and I was just like, right, fuck you old Howard Phillips just spitting in your grave right now. Oh yeah, um, I'm sure Lovecraft is real bummed. Yeah, it's the that ghastly aspect. sinister. Yeah, I yeah, can't yeah. say it. I uh, I uh, really want to watch it. It's available to stream, but I know it's also screening nearby soon with a Q and A. Where at? Uh, at Emmaus, they're doing. There's like a national thing where, like, on one night, they're going to stream a Q and A. I think with Nick Cage and Richard Stanley. So, are I, we going to that? I would like to go to that. Yeah. Okay. Um, it's at Emmaus. It might be Sunday though, which I know is not a great night for you, but we'll, we'll look on the Facebook and see. Yeah. Um, but so that's why I haven't watched it yet. Cause I, it came up on, uh, one of my things and I was like, yo, I'm going to watch this right now. And then I remember like, didn't I RSVP to something that's happening? And I had to look it up. But, yeah. Um, yeah, it looks great. I really also, can't, al- can't wait to watch it. Also shout out to a friend of the podcast, Brian Sow out in LA, um, he had texted me like, "Oh, did you see? Did you watch the Color Out of Space yet?" And I, was like, I did. He's like, "Well, you should rewatch it and watch the watch the credits for a special thanks." I was like, okay, so I watch it, and he's listed in there. Apparently, he hung out with. I don't understand what his actual role in the movie was, but the way he explained it was. Let me bring this up. I got to hang out with Richard Stanley for a day and shoot inserts of Burt Hair, Gross Tea, and Blood on the Necronomicon. It was amazing. All right. Yeah, he's a cinematographer out in Los oh, Angeles, so cool. it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that, that was that was you know good for you, Brian. Um, I was at Fantastic Fest when the Richard Stanley the documentary about him and the uh, debacle that was the Island of Doctor Moreau when that premiered at Fantastic Fest. I was there, and Richard Stanley was there, and he was the nicest, most chill dude. He's the, he's certainly like an awkward nerd, but uh, you know. I mean, I'll just say this. You're at a festival where your Stanley is there. You're not straight edge. 
you're in fact a a, a weedian or even you are a, a marijuana not even an amateur weedian. You don't even need to be fully fledged in the, in the in in the leaf. But uh, if you offer Richard Stanley some leaf, he's going to be down. Yeah, and uh, he's going to open up a little bit. And so uh, he just seemed like a nice dude. I know a few people hung out with him a lot. Um, you know, as an edgeman, I don't get to partake in that. You're particular... not an edgeman anymore. You're now a member of the Order of the Keef. <laughs> As an as an edgeman, I I didn't really get to partake in this particular uh, religious uh, ritual, yeah. but it seems like uh, he seems like a real down to earth guy who really like, you know, he's humble about his life because you know that was tough. That was a tough thing that he went through, and so I'm glad he's back, I'm, and I can't wait to watch the movie. Yeah, it's good. It's worth it. Um, I also went and saw the turning in theaters. I'm glad you didn't invite me, and I don't want to see it. Yeah. It's one of those things where I didn't think it looked that great anyway. And then when people were like, it's so much worse than it looks, I thought, well, there you go. Um, no, no, thank you. <sighs> Here's the thing about it. I really wanted to like it because Mackenzie Davis is great. She has really good chemistry with the the one actor who plays like the little girl in the movie. Everything else in that movie, well, there's also some like spooky imagery, but like that doesn't really... But like everything else in the movie is just this hodgepodge of bullshit. You know, I generally like Finn Wolfhard. I think he's great in Stranger Things. I think he's amazing in It Chapter One. In this one, he's just like, is he a sulky teenager? Yes. Is he going to sexually assault Mackenzie Davis? I don't know. Is he actually a good kid who's being a pawn of like another, like a ghost in the house? Maybe. Maybe all those things are true. I don't know. Because the film doesn't bother explaining any of it. And I don't need an explanation. I, I re- I'm totally cool with shit just happening and then like, oh, that sucked. That was weird cosmic misfortune. But if you're going to set up all these like story threads and drop all these like hints, you better fucking tie up some of them. And this movie is just, it just ends. And I've read the director being like, well, it's like a metaphor for, for mental illness. And you're like, no, that was the turning of the screw. <laughs> that this is based on. Your movie is not a metaphor for mental illness. You try to make it a metaphor for mental illness, but it is not a metaphor for... You're, like, I don't mean... It, it, this is a female director, so I really do want to... I, you know, I did support it, and I really want to like say good things about it, but I don't think the movie was as... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Subversive? Right. As she thinks it is. Right. Uh, one movie I did see in theaters that I really liked was Gretel and Hansel. I really want to see my it. God in heaven. Really get out there yet, really my God in heaven. What a fucking fever dream fuck mare that that movie was. I, uh, I just, I don't think I've ever, it, it just, it feels like it, it honestly feels like a nightmare there where there's all this like vague imagery that's sinister for a reason you can't really put your finger on. Um, there's some like straight up just flat out, terrifying uh set design and there's no creatures really but the um the way that like not the witch herself looks but the witches like some of her uh compatriots it, it just it's fucking like a madonna video going horribly wrong i'm into that that sounds great you know what i mean like it's just like it's just super scary um i would highly recommend that uh yeah it's just you know, I've been telling people like, oh, what was, what was, what was like Gretel and Hansel? What happened? I was like, oh, there's scenes where you just look off in the distance and you see people doing spooky Madonna poses in the fog. And they're like, that doesn't sound scary. I'm like, yeah, except it is. 
Like if we just looked down the street in the fog and there was like Madonna poses going on, I would lose my fucking mind. And that's what this movie I like, is. I like that you've, you've called it Madonna poses. That's what they do. They're just like, there's one scene where they're like tripping on mushrooms and like um, Sophia Lillis is like, like panicking and there's, it's like all foggy and she just looks off and there's like a person wearing a witch hat. Just like voguing. Like not like voguing furiously, but like in a weird pose. It's just, yeah, it's just, I don't know. It might, I just, I got goosebumps now. It's just spooky. It's just very spooky. <laughs> um, You're the most easily rattled hard. I truly am. No. On the internet. Uh, side note, on Saturday night, I'm not going to say my mom tricked me into coming over to watch a movie with her, but it was basically, my mom was like, hey, you, should, you know, swing by, you got some mail. So I went over there and I was like, hey, where's, where's my niece and dad? Oh, they're not here. Was it just you? Yeah, everyone else is doing stuff. I got the house to myself. You want to watch a movie? Oh, okay, Mom. She put on Dr. Sleep. Bad idea. I posted a picture on my personal Instagram of my mom watching this movie during that scene. And it is uh, people who have watched horror movies with me are just like, that's what you do. Yeah. Like, that's that is exactly, exactly right. what you do. That's exactly right. So it's like my, and then like my father comes and he's like, yeah, what's, uh, it's good. It's not scary. Mom was like, that little boy should have won an Oscar. My dad's like, why? He just laid there screaming. It's not a big deal. I'll lay on the floor and scream. I won an Oscar. <laughs> just like. <laughs> I love that. I like picturing your dad like in the art museum. Like, it was just painting. Yeah, just painting. They just threw paint in a I could yeah. do that. I'm, I'm Jackson Pollock right yeah. now. I'll Jackson Pollock this shit up. You don't even know. Yeah, my father also took great joy in, point, in pointing out every Shining reference to my mom because she, she hasn't seen that movie probably since... I was born. Right. So he's just like, hey, Linda, you know who those twins are? Norm, I don't. Yeah, they, the dad killed them. You would know that if you saw the movie in the last 30 years, but you didn't, so I got to tell you that. It's like time after time. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so that's all I did. Um, so I guess we'll take a quick break, and when we get back, we're going to talk about 1976's science fiction horror film written and directed by the King of New York, Larry Cohen. We'll be right back. He stays in hiding. Isolation. It, it isn't necessary for him to actually uh, contact us directly anymore. What happened to you is over after I was born. What's happening to me is just beginning. God told me to. We are back to talk about 1976's science fiction horror film, God Told Me To. God Told Me To. Written and directed by the one true king of New York City, Larry Cohen. A, a, a god among men. Yes. <laughs> if, 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 um, if his particular divinity could be uh, the god of shooting things for cheap and probably illegally, 
than he is. In That's fact, Larry Cohen. I put to you, he is a god amongst other gods. Because we yeah. just watched a documentary where he was hanging out with like Scorsese and De Niro and De Palma, and right, he was like so self assured amongst them. Yeah, that well, and the idea, one of the things that sort of set Larry Cohen apart. You can call him Larry. Set Larry, my man, Larry apart. I mean, I did have. Brunch. I was going to say you do, you do, you you you've met him. I did have brunch with him, and he did make fun of my brunch. Yeah, you were in Creed, um, and you know Larry Cohen. You knew Larry Cohen personally. I met Larry Cohen once. I'm sure he did not remember me. Other than maybe he told the story later of like I totally made fun of this kid. Quick, <laughs> quick story, y'all. Uh, Larry Cohen directed a film called The Ambulance that starred one Mr. Eric Roberts at the first year of Cinepocalypse. They had Eric Roberts there to talk to us when we were doing Eric Roberts is the fucking man. Uh, they also showed The Ambulance. And so they had Larry Cohen out as well as the premiere of this documentary, King Cohen. And so we all went to brunch together and I told Larry Cohen that um, the stuff messed me up as a kid. And instead of taking it as a compliment, he proceeded to say that my brunch of biscuits and gravy was messing him up in that it was f- more frightening than anything in the stuff and then he pretended to be afraid of my breakfast for the rest of breakfast pretended <laughs> to be fair this is also a man who uh made the stuff uh who ate the top of his burger like it was a piece of toast and put jam on it hey fuck you man you don't judge larry why what he does that's fair <laughs> his eating habits were no more less weird than eric roberts so it's fine do you ever think that maybe our eating habits are weird to him? <laughs> That's probably true, actually. He did make the stuff. Anyway, so Larry Cohen, for those of you who don't know, was a uh, director who you know made the transition from television, where he actually directed a little bit, but mostly wrote scripts, into making um, films, starting with more uh, black exploitation pictures, and then he transitioned into horror, and then made all kinds of other movies, and even wrote a few things um, before he passed away. Uh, he's just one of those figures in the underground, so to speak, that has a lot of respect from a lot of different people, you know? He's like Roger Corman, but more, uh, human. (laughs) Well, he doesn't have quite the empire, you know, Roger Corman ran this huge sort of machine and Larry Cohen, it was all about him. And in fact, some of his best movies for example cue the winged serpent was because he started a project he didn't see eye to eye with the producers he either left or got fired there's some difference of opinion about Mm -hmm. how that happened and then he just was like well i'm here in new york i've got some money i'm just gonna make this other movie i wanted to make bada bing bada boom cue the winged serpent one of my favorite horror movies of all time so fucking good literally him just being like oh you're not gonna make me make let me make this movie fuck it, I'll do this other thing. That happened multiple times in his career where he got kicked off of one thing and made something else. Isn't that how uh, James Cameron got to make uh, The Terminator? Uh, uh, why? So who got kicked off of it? No, no, no. He got kicked off... Um, oh, James Cameron got kicked off. James Cameron got kicked off of uh, Piranha 2. Oh, yes. And then he had like a fucking nightmare over in Rome about uh, the thing, a Terminator. To, to be fair, have you tried to watch Piranha 2? No, why would I do that? Oh, it's so bad. Yeah, of course it is. <laughs> They're flying fish, though. So. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so anyways, the, this is uh, Larry Cohen's second horror film. His first, famously, uh, was It's Alive, and so this was his next move. Um, this is the third Cohen film we've covered. This is the third. What, we also covered uh, Q, Q and, and It's Serpent. Alive. Yeah. This is our third. So awesome. Well, we could cover, I mean, he's. I think he has like six horror films, right? He's got like, a couple. We still haven't done the stuff. Yeah. I thought we did do, no, we didn't do the stuff. 
we have yeah. plans for it, but yeah. we've never actually done it. Uh, this movie, uh, similarly to Q, really captures what I love about 1970s New York City. Sure. Uh, Larry Cohen's vision of New York City is amongst my favorites, if not my favorite. There's just something about the way he he makes these shots where... Uh, I don't know the technical term for it because I'm not a cinematographer, but it'll be this long shot that's zoomed in. Sure. Where the camera's like maybe 300 feet away, but it's like zoomed in on, on the person as they're walking. So there's it, you get this really interesting feel for it because... Um, you know, a lot of times he'll do that and then he'll, he'll pull out and it just like shows it like widens in scope. Well, let's be clear about this. Larry Cohen developed this style, which is not totally his own, but he was doing it because he was shooting illegally. In fact, That's what I'm saying is, is it, it, it kind of lends, I hate to sound like an asshole, it makes the film feel more authentic because there's not a camera crew following right, this guy 100%. tied up, every, you know, super tight everywhere. And when you have a camera crew like that, people are going to react. What? If you guys want an example of this, look up on YouTube the end of the movie Black Caesar, which was his first black exploitation movie. And it ends with Black Caesar being chased by someone who's trying to assassinate him. And he's clearly shooting this from a building across the street while these men fight each other and the crowd just reacts the way a crowd would, which is like, are you guys okay? What's happening <laughs> here? Did he just shoot that guy? Like, there's this whole thing where. If you didn't know who he was, you might think like, wow, that's quite a choreographed crowd response. Yeah. No, they're just capturing what's happening because they didn't have any permits. They didn't just close the set. I mean, it, anyone who lives in a major city where filming is happening will let you know one of the great joys in life is ignoring a PA as he tries to tell you that this is a closed set and you can't cross the street. I mean, that that sometimes lends for great filmmaking like in, a, what is it, um... I keep wanting to say Midnight Cowboy, but that's not it. With Dustin Hoffman, right? With the the famous taxi cab almost hitting him, and he's like bangs on it, and he's like, "We're trying to make." No, it. that is Midnight Cowboy. Is that Midnight? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You were thinking of Drugstore Cowboy, which yes. is uh, a Gus Van Sant movie. Ah, yes. I was also thinking of Urban Cowboy starring John Travolta. <laughs> that's true as well. <laughs> so, I, you know, to to give you an idea, usually a director would try to control the environment. Um, in some places, like in New York, they sometimes will shut down a whole street. You can't get through. Philly, they try to do that, but oftentimes, Philadelphians, unless you put an actual physical barrier, they're just going to ignore you. Unless you and, speak through gritty, they'll just fuck you. Yeah. Um, but uh, for Larry, his whole thing was he couldn't afford the permits. He wanted to put all of his money that he had into production value. Also, kind of, and this is what Justin's pointing to, you get more production value when you don't get a permit because then you just film what's happening. Yeah. And that actually looks better. So um, I want to tell you, I'll give you an example of this in this film, but first we have to say what this film is about, which is a very Catholic police officer gets involved in investigating a series of crimes in which people are killing, murdering, and saying that God told them to do it. They don't run away. They don't try to escape. They don't seem to feel any remorse. They just, God told me to do it. You know, yeah. the first one we see, he commits suicide, but in multiple of the other ones, they don't, they just hang out. You know, they're just, they're talking to the cops like, yeah, you know, and then I, I did it. You know? Yeah. The scene where the guy talks about killing his, uh, what is his daughter? Yeah. It's fucking chilling. So, uh, as the story moves forward in this investigation, uh, um, deepens the cop starts to suspect that uh, obviously these are connected he starts there starts to be an angle around alien abduction interesting he starts to worry about his own 
past and mm-hmm. then things get real fucking weird. But before we get to that, um, early on in the story, uh, there's this point where he has started suggesting these things are connected and people don't believe him. And someone calls um, uh, to warn them. Turns out this someone is actually a part of a cabal of people who know the being who is causing these murders and claiming to be God. And so um, this guy, I guess, has a crisis of faith, you would call it, calls the police and says there's going to be a shooting at the Irish Day Parade, which the Irish Day Parade is basically cop parade as well as Irish people because <laughs> that's how it is. And so um, this police officer goes down there to try to stop it. And he's told not to. Like, You're going to freak everybody out. He's got to get down there and see what's going to happen. So how did Larry decide to shoot this event at the St. Patrick's Day Parade. Well, he just showed up with cameras. He showed up with motherfucking Andy Kaufman, mm-hmm. Kaufman in a police uniform and a gun with blanks in it, pushed him into the middle of the parade and just marched and they filmed him. And then even filmed him shooting someone during the parade. <laughs> and at the, the it's perfect. For those of you who haven't seen it, I highly recommend the documentary, King Cohen. Larry Cohen literally was like, we didn't have permission, we just did it. And because we just did it, everyone assumed we had permission. Yeah. <laughs> That's his fucking... That is that is, that is Larry's yep. production philosophy in a nutshell. It's so perfect. Like, um, we talk about it in Cue the Winged Serpent, but there's a scene at the... The climax of the movie is when there's like 40 cops on top of the Chrysler building. Um, it's sort of like a recreation, like a reverse King Kong... Where right. there's like this thing is like circling the Chrysler building and like picking off cops and they're just like gunning at it with these machine guns. And the cops were called, <laughs> real cops were called because people were like, um, so I think there's a war being fought on top of the Chrysler, yeah. the Chrysler building. I think building. it's a terrorist attack. Yeah, I think some there's some a kind. terrorist attack on top of the Chrysler building. And what's crazy, I mean, Larry sort of names this in that documentary, like all of the cops he has playing cops are just cops. Yeah. And like this isn't just. Um, those they would be good at playing cops. You know what? Police have at least at that time. Maybe this isn't true anymore. They have their own costumes. So you just say to cops, "Hey, I'll give you an extra fifty bucks. Show up, and uh, we have got these guns with blanks in them." And all the cops are like, "Sure." So then at the Sears building, they just see a bunch of uniformed men going into the elevator with guns. They're yeah. like, "All right, well, I guess it's a cop thing. I don't know." It, no one stops to ask because. What do you? I mean, to be fair, this is 1970s New York. Maybe today people would be different, but at the time, if 60 cops show up and they go, "Yeah, it's cool," you just go, "All right, it's cool, <laughs> man. I guess it's cool." Are you going to tell them it's not cool? No. Yeah. So uh, this is what Larry Cohen did, and you know we're focusing on the police aspect. This film is about police, but this is how he did everything. There was never any permission, um, and <clears throat> you know reusing stuff. Larry bought this amazing house in California. He mostly shot in New York, but he shot some in California, and he used this house that he bought as a set for three different movies, which just seems like something you would do to save money. Yeah. But he goes to the next step to say, well, that's why I bought the house. <laughs> I bought the house so I could use it for food. Not, I happened to be a rich guy who bought myself a nice house. It was, this was a house that was cheap because someone died here, and I saw it and said, I could use that in a movie, and I bought it. That's amazing. I, God damn it. <laughs> so, back to this film. Real, uh, real quick, another, my personal favorite moment yeah. in Lar- Larry's philosophy in filmmaking yeah. is the scene in Cue the Winged Serpent when it's right after Michael Moriarty gets hit by the cab and the fucking briefcase full of diamonds goes flying and he's running down the street limping. It's shot, again, from a distance. 
and all these people are like, you see all these like pedestrians like reacting. And then he like runs down an alley and you see some people like run after him, like wait. And it's just like, you realize that these people just saw a man get hit by a taxi taxi. and then run down the street, frantically looking over his shoulder. So they're like, uh, do you need any help? And it's yeah. What what can I do for you? Yeah, right it's now? it's just uh, it's just this amazing moment, and 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 then of course it pulls out, and you see all these people like looking confused because they just saw someone almost die. <laughs> so, God told me to is also a classic um, Larry Cohen movie, and that it is a horror movie that takes something that seems not upsetting, makes it upsetting, and also twists you around. Um, it's also and this is something I hadn't thought about till uh, I saw it, was reminded of it in the King Cohen documentary. Larry Cohen is Jewish. Yeah. And this film is clearly about Catholic guilt. One has to wonder who did he, how does he know the Catholic guilt so much that this movie is so dripping with it? I mean, maybe you could argue that the difference between Catholic guilt and Jewish guilt is not that far. What do the Jews have to feel guilty for? Well, I don't know. I mean, I think the 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 uh, you know it's the difference between being guilty towards Jesus or being guilty towards your mother, right? Like that's like there's a sense in which two groups of people who seem to complain a lot about uh, neurosis and anxiety. You know, like have you watched a Woody Allen film? Like it's just all about him feeling bad about things, and of course wanting to fuck children because that's the other thing. What are you talking about, Woody Allen? I'm saying, how does this? T- are you just making a? <laughs> Not all Jewish people are weird nebbishes, just frantically... Wait a minute. So what you're suggesting right now is that it's perfectly okay to suggest that all Catholic people are weird, guilt-ridden monsters, but uh, Jewish folks are not. I put to you... I'm going to refer... I'm going to ask you the same question I asked you about a minute ago. Yeah. What do Jewish people have to feel guilty for? Guilty about? Are you suggesting that Catholic guilt... Is it all tied to the history of Catholicism? Because that is so obviously incorrect that I don't even want to... Interesting. I have... Catholic guilt is purely about being part of a system in which you are told, Jesus is watching you, and if you don't do a Hail Mary for what you just thought, you're going to go to hell. Well, I mean, there's... Okay, and... But I don't think it's related to the actual historical... No, 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 no. I'm saying as as um, as an ideology... Sure. Judaism does not have the inherent sense of uh, what's the word necessary salvation. All right, so you're making a theological claim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm saying like, well, uh, no, I. Uh, I mean, also Catholics. There's a systematic, you know, there's systematic child abuse in the Catholic Church. I oh, sure, sure, sure. To, sure. to, to the best of my knowledge, the Jewish folk are a kind and friendly people who who frown upon such. I practices. just don't think. I just don't think Catholic. I think you can be struggling with Catholic guilt and not be acknowledging the history of Catholicism. I don't think those two are. I think, in fact, both Catholics who are fully aware of the history then tend to not be dealing with Catholic guilt because then they have this whole other level of like social... Ju- Catholic guilt, from my understanding of its depiction in art, is like a personal like uh, related to your own purity in a very sort of personalized way. Not to get Usually about jerking off and things like that. Yeah. Not Especially get, with dudes, at least. Not to get too crazy off topic, but if since Catholic guilt is such like a sort of um, theological and sociological phenomenon, why isn't there such a thing as, say, um, Calvinist guilt? Uh, because, well, there, okay, so there is, except there isn't. Because the difference between the Calvinist phenomena, I see. And okay, the I just realized. That. I just realized. Yeah, is that um, the people in Calvinism who feel bad are probably not doing the wrong thing. 
they just aren't sure if they're chosen or not. Yeah, I was going to say, it. <laughs> kind of like, well, going to go to hell anyway, might as well, right. <laughs> you know. And you could argue, I mean, at least um, in a lot of cases, the depiction of Catholic guilt is often related to your cultural circumstances more than any, like, serious, th- you might have a general sense of, like, I'm bad because that seems to be the foundation of certain kinds of education, but it's not universal per se. Like it describes a phenomena, but I mean, plenty of Catholics seem to not be dealing with the phenomena of Catholic guilt. Yeah. Um, uh, but I mean, as far as like, is, is Larry Cohen relating to Catholic guilt in this film from a, some other sense of neuroses? I don't know. Watching King Cohen, I, he doesn't seem to be dealing with, any neuroses of it. He seems to be a very secure gentleman who is not worried about the world thinks of him in any oh, yeah. particular way. He seems to be a man who is at all times in control of his surroundings. Right. And if he's not, he doesn't care. Right. So I don't, I don't know how he was able to depict this. So I think he's just a smart guy who, who taps into, sure. he, you know, he it's just. It's like a character thing, too. Yeah. It, it, it's sort of like a it's, a, it's a, it's a deconstruction of religion and what makes religion uh, on a personal level toxic. And that is the. Uh, it's the personal guilt, I guess. Like you know, like uh, what's his name? What's the, the the Peter Nicholas, the the detective in this movie? What he's dealing with is he has a mistress that he clearly loves. Sure, but he also feels bad about cheating on his wife. Well, and his connection to he's been a person whose faith is animated to some extent by this feeling that he's reaching for something more. He needs to be something better. And then the way the movie plays with that is like. Yeah, you, that, there is something more going on here, but it's not what you think. It's not what you think. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, uh, so, uh, yeah, that that relationship with his mistress is so telling because he's guilty to God for his wife. His wife doesn't care. Like any husband could be guilty who's in an affair, right? Yeah, yeah. Only at this point, he's not in an affair anymore because his wife knows about it and doesn't care. Yeah, and would rather them just get an annulment and move on with their lives and yet he's incapable of doing it because of the depth of his conviction which really depicts it that the what i think is interesting is that you know larry cohen describes this movie as taking religion and making it nefarious only before he sets it up as a scary thing it's already a huge burden on our man well even when it's a quote-unquote good thing in his life it's a big Cross the bear, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, I think, I, I think another thing it's uh, that this film you you could look at it from this this film is typically when there's an affair going on, right? The repercussions of the affair come from your partner finding out, right? In this case, his partner knows, doesn't give a shit, and he still feels bad. That alone could be like, okay, there, there, right there is a decent human being who is like, I don't care what the consequences are of my actions. Right, right. My actions are wrong because they're wrong, not because... Sure. You know? But he still has that guilt because he feels like there's this father figure just disapproving of what right. he's doing. So even there, I think it, 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 it's it's about, um, you know, religion gone right, wrong. Right, but right. it's also sort of uh, how religion kind of... Um, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is. It, it sort of masquerades as a as, as a... Objective morality, I guess. Well, I mean, I don't think he thinks he's being objective, but I think he is worried about... Um, no, I mean, he feels guilty because he thinks God is disapproving of him. He right. doesn't feel guilty because he thinks it's wrong. He thinks it's wrong because God disapproves of it. Well, I think he already knows at some level it's not wrong. Like, at this point, don't get me wrong, if he had just met this woman 
and he's got this loving home and he's a bit then i'm like man you're, you're screwing up when we see him he's actually being more wrong because in order to maintain his religious guilt he has to lie to his mistress <laughs> and say that he doesn't want to hurt his wife when we find out in the film wife doesn't care wife's yeah. like go live your life buddy i don't care and the wife even suggests do you really think god cares because I don't think so. And the dude's like, oh, I can't. I just can't. There's something about that that is so... It, so what it makes me think of is um, one of those Zizek, you know, uh, Slavo Zizek? He has these... He's a philosopher, dude. He has these jokes um, that he uses to explain complicated things okay. or whatever. He's kind of a jerk off. But the jokes, I think, are actually... I know pretty, who this guy, yeah. It's pretty, uh, the jokes are pretty funny, I think. So one of the jokes he tells to get people to understand this idea of like the big other. So yeah. his argument about religion is that uh christianity it's easy because you know the big other but actually all of us have a big other we've just learned to have other kinds of big others so he tells a joke about this man who's convinced that he's a worm he's just totally psychologically convinced he's a worm and he's so worried about being a worm he's afraid of chickens chickens are gonna eat him so he goes to therapy for years and years finally therapist is like you're ready you need to go to the petting zoo and deal with your feeling about chickens so he goes and he's freaking out. He calls his therapist. He's like, okay, I'm at the petting zoo, but I'm really scared. The therapist says, okay, but we talked about this. You aren't a worm. You know you're not a worm. You're not a worm. man says, no, you're right. I get it. I know I'm not a worm. But what if the chickens don't know I'm not a worm? <laughs> and so Shishek always is like saying these stupid jokes and then going, but that's really how you are. That, yeah, yeah. That whatever you telling yourself it doesn't matter because you still think there's something over you that's judging you. you know? Yes, yes. So that's sort of the situation that he's in here. Is And it's not just about what he does. He's doing the wrong thing. It's about his intention that somehow if it stays an affair, it's less bad than if he actually leaves his wife. I think by him leaving his wife, that sort of legitimizes it. Yeah, exactly. So all that to say, we're talking a lot about his background when that's sort of the background that brings us into him realizing, A that there is a young hippie man, though he didn't look that young. Let's be honest about that. No, he wasn't that young. I'll tell you how old this guy was. Keep talking. I'm going to tell you how old this guy was. So there's a young hippie man who's been using some sort of powers to get people to kill themselves. And not only that, there's this cadre of people who know about it and who are sort of, I don't know, negotiating with hippie man or somehow trying to be beneficiaries of his... Uh, uh, Richard Lynch, the guy who played the young hippie man, sure. was my age when they made this movie, and I am not a young man. No, nor so, am I a hippie. Um, over time, uh, the this man, uh, the police officer, starts to realize that um, the stories he's hearing about an abduction and possible uh, uh, impregnation by, uh, let's say, let's say, uh, unwilling impregnation by aliens, that that's not a story about young hippie man as he first thinks it is. It's a story about him. Mm-hmm. It's him. He's the one. He is. He is, in fact, the one whose whose mom had to give him up because uh, she was victimized by alien creatures and she couldn't stand to be around him. I understand. I, 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 I understand that. I I actually think we talk. We, I, we'll talk about it more, but I do think the the what is actually a very powerful scene between him and the woman who plays his she's his, his biological mother. Uh, is the one place where this movie really doesn't work for me in that there's not enough sympathy for her. The the, the scene focuses too much on him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how it affects him. And you're like, Ugh. Her actual pain at being raped and yes. impregnated and yes. forced to carry this fucking inhuman child yes. is just used as a foil. But like, like, yeah, 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 that sucks. 
But what about him? He just found out he's part alien. Yeah. What, can oh. we talk about him a little bit more? Oh, man. It must be hard being half yeah. an alien. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm not coming down too hard on my man Larry. I think that was a victim of the times, a very small-minded, stupid times. I am going to come down on Larry for the one scene, though. Oh, I know what you're going to yeah. yeah, yeah. So, uh, anyways, he finally figures out that this other dude is probably similarly an alien. He starts to sense it. Had, they have a big confrontation. His... Uh, Basically, his 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 half brother seduces him with his armpit yeah, pussy. Says, "Hey, I've got a vagina in my armpit. We could just make alien babies and rule the world." And weirdly enough, a uh, policeman doesn't go for that offer. He doesn't reject it quickly enough, in my <laughs> opinion. I mean, to be fair, he what he's learned is that everything he knows to be true is not true. That he that's fine. Know, so. He just, he, I, I actually, you know what? I don't think it's weird that he doesn't reject it right away because I'm sure some part of him is thinking, I mean, maybe this is what aliens do. I don't know. This could be normal for aliens. I don't know what the normal is. Yeah, but How they, do I know? They make it a point, they make it a point to, to sort of like highlight that with, uh, what's the guy's name? Bernard. Yeah. The young hippie guy. The alien genes are, are, are dominant in his case. Yeah. He has a pussy in his armpit. Yeah. I don't have that. You don't have that. Yeah. Where in uh, Peter Nicholas's case, it's the human genes that are that are dominant. Yeah. So I really don't. I'm really not buying the fact that he's like we're alien. I just I I I don't know. It's just wait. So you think he's not an alien? No, no, no. Well, I mean, he's part alien, but for all intents and purposes, he is far more human than his brother is. Sure, but I I think within the context of the film. His entire framework. I mean, he's the Danny DeVito uh, to the other guys, Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> all I'm trying to say is he's had he's given up uh, prior. All that mattered to him was his religion and his mistress and his wife. And now he said goodbye to all three of those things. So I just think when he sees the arm vagina, he's like, I, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and then finally, he's like, No, I'm not going to do it. He hits his his alien brother. Turns out, alien brother never experienced pain. Side note. This man is not attractive enough to have never experienced pain because the reality is no child who looks that weird didn't get beat up. I don't care yeah. if he's got all the alien powers of the world. Someone hit him with a stick once. He's also like weirdly yellow and like golden. Well, he's glowing. It's this whole alien thing. He's jaundiced, yeah. it looks like. He looks sick. Now you're just judging the special effects. That's, that's the no, best they could do. I'm saying Richard Lynch looks like a weird, unhealthy human being. Stop. Point is, uh, he... The, he lashes out at him, the building caves in, and our man is arrested for the murder of alien Jesus. Yeah. And he ends up sent off to a mental hospital uh, for the rest of his life. Which and how is do a we, dark, and, dark, and we, dark ending. Yeah, it is a dark ending. I'm not going to... I'm not going to disagree with you there. Yeah. But it's sort of neutered by the fact that we have to get a fucking title card at the end being like, and then he spent the rest of his life in... A, it's like... Yeah, but couldn't he have just said, like, couldn't it have just ended with him coming full circle and they're like, you know, he spends this whole movie anguishing over, you know, struggling with his faith, struggling with the fact that these people are murdering other people and saying it's because God told them to. Yeah. And then he comes full circle and they're like, why'd you do it? And he's like, God told me to. Like, if it had just ended right there, that would have been such a a, a perfect ending for this movie. But the fact they had to, the fact they had to tackle on that, like, sort of dumb Oh, I could not disagree more with everything you're saying right now. What? Yeah. You really enjoy the fact that they're, they they have to let us know. Yeah, because the whole, because to me, well, A, I don't 
nothing about the idea alone of an end thing bothers me. All uh, many of my favorite movies end that way. Yeah, yeah no, I'm, I'm just saying it. in this case, in this specific case. No, it adds to it. In that moment, he is for the first time not living an entire lie. The whole movie is letting us know that he just lives a lie. He just is everything he thinks and feels is a lie. The horror of the movie to some extent is about his whole world falling apart and how there's this whole other reality he's a part of. So at the moment where he is finally not living in an illusion is when he's put into a mental hospital. I think that makes sense. I think that is like a, a, a sharp way to end the film. Doesn't feel cheesy to me at all. I I think it's the actual technique. The actual. What other way are they going to show us that that would be better? Show me. Don't tell me. I again. First, of, okay. Let's say something about this as a Larry Cohen movie. If you are someone for whom pacing is essential, it's important for you to understand that Larry is a running gun director. And there are parts of this movie that feel choppy because I swear to God, he got one take and then got kicked out of a boat. Like, there are just a couple places where you go, I would have reshot that. And then you got to stop and go, they made this movie for like $30,000. There was yeah. no reshooting anything. They were running from the cops half the time. <laughs> yeah, like, the, the, this is actually probably the best they could do a lot. Oh, of yeah. So for me, I guess they could have spent the money on like a shot of him in a mental hospital or something like that. But. Nothing about the card is a negative for me at all. It's just that shot of him, especially because the look on his face is like, this is really funny. This is funny what's happening to me right now. That's like the look you get when you're about to lose it. It just haunts me. That that last the, the look on his face is to me, it's like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's I love it. It's so good. I'm saying I don't I'm not saying I dislike it. I'm just saying I, I think you and I had different reactions to it. Whereas I was just like, huh, that's a bummer. Yeah, that's how I wanted it to end. I mean, I guess, I guess it could have ended with him becoming alien Jesus. That's what no, you I don't want that. You were like, yo, get up in that arm. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So this is, you know, like we said, this is Larry Cohen, uh, very intentionally being like, okay, so I just made a movie where the baby is the monster. <laughs> so how do I make a movie about something else people care about that, like? I'm just flipping it on its head a little bit. Let's do a movie about religion, you know? Um, again, why Catholicism? Probably an easy target, you know? Uh, it's probably easier to do that than something else, you know? Uh, Especially I, for a police officer in New York City. I also think it ties in with the whole idea. It makes it weirder when they reveal that uh, Bernard Phillips was yeah. born of a virgin. Oh, yeah. It makes it far creepier when it's just like, oh, no, she, his mother went missing for a few hours and she came back pregnant, which is terrifying. Right, right. I mean, that's almost the plot of the Midwich Cuckoos. Well, and I do 100% think that um, it, he's indirectly suggesting this is a pretty logical explanation for what the stories about Jesus Christ are. Uh, he, he, yeah. doesn't, he doesn't ever, I will say, he leaves a little gray area. He never directly says... Hey, hippie alien man is right. Jesus was also an alien. And in fact, our main character sort of points out, well, it is weird that Jesus healed and loved people and you just force people to murder. Those don't seem quite the same. But he also never says that Jesus wasn't his own alien hippie. So yeah, you know who else thought Jesus was an alien? Hmm. Marshall Applewhite from the Heaven's Gate cult. And I mean, and Ridley Scott, so you can't. Well, yeah. And I think the guy who made X-Files. Chris Carter? Yeah. I remember my stepdad was obsessed with Chris Carter, and he was saying two things he learned from, that he agrees with Chris Carter. One was that Jesus was an alien, 
and that if there is a God, it's a math equation. Both of those things are stupid. Math equation. It's an equation. That's... <laughs> well, the first thing I actually don't think is stupid, like, I don't uh, necessarily agree with it, but I do think it's not a terrible idea of, like, hey, some of these stories feel like stories similar to what people say about aliens. I'm going to say this, and then we're going to fucking stop this tangent in its tracks because I feel the rage building in me. That is a tangent. That is an aspect of ancient astronaut theory that I will not... I will not let be spoken of in my presence. See, my problem with ancient astronaut theory is not that certain divine stories remind people of aliens because that leaves it up to you to decide for yourself. That's still then a matter of faith about what you whatever. My problem with ancient astronaut it's theory... It's fucking racist as hell. Well, yeah, but that's... so. But saying that about stories is not in and of itself racist because what you're saying is, huh, what I hear here reminds me of aliens. It, to you, sounds like... Uh, supernatural beings, then that's still a matter of deciding for yourself. What is racist about ancient astronaut theory is when you look at things humans did and you say... Wasn't white people. These, had to be aliens. These humans could possibly know how to put some rocks on top of each other. Like, I, don't get me wrong. The pyramids seem very impressive. Yeah. But the idea of no Africans could know how to make the pyramids. So therefore, it must be aliens. That's where the racism lies. To quote, to paraphrase Bill Murray, no human being would stack rocks that way. <laughs> But the you know the 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 idea that like oh divine my only issue with the divine stories sound like aliens thing is when they only apply it to like non Judeo Christian you know what I mean like the, the, simply re- reading Ezekiel and saying like well the wheel of fire yeah like oh that sounds like an alien that's not to me in and of itself racist or even prejudice to say this is the only possible explanation then i'm like okay as a man with a degree in philosophy and religious studies i will say this about such a thing i mean you know i have also degrees i'm saying but so you'll you'll understand this right that also it doesn't i'm not like yeah like agent astronaut theory is racist eric von daniken (laughs) is a racist yes hp lovecraft was a racist yeah also on like a level of like as someone who understands like the structure of logic and has studied right. it and has right. a fucking degree in it. Right. None of that shit stands up at all to fucking freshman 101 intro to philosophy logic <laughs> at all. I mean, in, 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 in right now, so many people are just like, oh yeah, I came here for a philosophy lesson and it's off. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry guys. I mean, wait, to be fair, we are talking about God told me to. In yeah, which yeah. Literally it's suggesting that divinity and aliens might be the same thing. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's. I'm not opposed to the idea. I just think that in modern times and in modern culture, the idea has become so tainted by monster chugging fucking vapists. Oh sure, that it. I hate talking about it. Well, no, I mean, I guess for me, all I was saying is that Larry gives himself the out of never a hundred percent confirming. Yes, this is the explanation, but he does sort of put it out. He flirts with it enough. What that it was aliens or no yeah. that alien. It definitely was aliens. All he suggests is that this situation is aliens. He doesn't... The, oh, okay. The, okay, that the whole thing was Scary wasn't. alien man says, well, I'm like Jesus. But the movie never goes, he's right, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, no, Larry never says from the camera, he goes, just so you know, this is what Jesus was, was alien man with vagina in his armpit. Gotcha, gotcha. That, that never happened. And like, he could... I mean, 100%, let's say this movie doesn't get made. Just, he writes a script, doesn't get made. Someone finds the script now, and they're going to make the movie. 100% they're telling you, also, 
this is what Jesus was. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. Like, I mean, isn't that a little bit of like indirectly what Prometheus is about? Like, oh, it's not indirect. It's it, Ridley Scott said Jesus was um, uh, what are they, what are they, what, what did he fuck up and call him a space jockey? Yeah, 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 yeah. Which sounds like a racial slur. Um, <laughs> Or what? What did he call them in the movie? Because they're not space jockeys anymore. The no. fucking uh, the permit. I don't fuck fuck Ridley Scott. Well, the, the the giant. He's a giant white man. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> he said like in a thing where he's just like, yes, two thousand years ago, one of them came down and tried to help us. Care to guess who it was? Was it Jesus? Look who's look who's very smart. It was <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> the, what I love about these people that want it do this though that deconstruct religion into aliens is that they always got to keep jesus around as part of like in the movie prometheus right and it, it when it suggests that the genetic roots you know the biological roots of humanity are these white dudes like a white dude just came down and drank some poi poi and now that's where we all come from right that could just bypass judeo-christianity right yeah. you could just you could just say well that's the real thing and all the shit we've been making up since Eh, jerk off juice doesn't matter yeah none of it matters instead all these white men gotta go yes the origins i've recreated the origins of human life but jesus is a part of it (laughs) jesus is in there it's like oh it's santa claus as well like again y'all if you're a religious person i'm not trying to bum you out you know as you know i consider myself a religious person though you might think of me as a heretic in many ways but what i'm saying is if you're going to build it from the ground up Why does it need to have the same fucking window? You haven't reinvented Mm -hmm. the home when it's the same color as the place. And that's that's kind of what I love about the. uh, And again, I have it written. I just got to put it up on the on the Cinepunk site. Yeah. One of the things I love about that F. Paul Wilson's book from H. P. Lovecraft, it's like he doesn't even bother. He doesn't even give religion the dignity of being like, well, here's where Jesus came from. He's just like, no, there are these two opposing forces, and they're struggling to to reclaim reality. What's that? Where does Jesus fit in? He doesn't. He's just there. I, no, no. It, I don't know if nobody existed, but these things are real. Jesus might be. I don't know. It's just he just bypasses it like a like a forgotten child. To be fair, I'm not busting on Larry Cohen that way because, as far as Larry Cohen's concerned, all of this is the the Jesus as Jesus or Jesus as alien. All of it sounds like crazy people talk to him. I yeah, don't think he particularly is, cares about anything. He's of not that. out to make some fucking grand theological argument about this. this I mean, is, you know, I think he does in the sense of the human. I mean, you could say that the only theology we're talking about is about the human response to these ideas. I and would that, say that. In that sense, this is a very theological movie because it's very much talking about the emotions that we're all sort of dealing with when it comes to any ultimate concern. Even atheists have big ideas about the world, and when those ideas fall apart, they might go, oh, no, well, what do I believe in now? Like, I, I guess I have to leave my wife and mistress. <laughs> <laughs> I can't let them know about each other because of my uh, non-theological yeah. ethical commitments. My fear that Elvis Presley will strike me dead from beyond the grave? <laughs> All right. Well, okay. Let's talk just a teeny bit and then wrap up about this movie and just see what we thought, which is I love this movie. Um, it is a bit of a mess and it's certainly never scary, but I don't really care about that. What I care about is gritty New York. Yes. Running gun filmmaking, some truly upsetting scenes. As, as Justin already pointed out, the scene where he's having a just a chill conversation with a dad who just murdered his whole family. Fuck. Oh, my God. 
And that father, like, I really think the direction Larry Cohen was like, yeah, no, act like you're telling us about a golf trip. This is a golf trip. You're telling us about a golf trip. Yeah, that's what's so, that's what, I mean, the, the problem with, the problem with a lot of times in films, when people try to be creepy serial killers, yeah. there's an underlying glee to it. Yeah. But the scariest thing is when you watch shit like, um, when you watch, like, watch an interview with, like, uh, who's the fucking guy who they did Mindhunter on? The fucking big oh, guy. Oh, Ed, Ed. Ed, Ed, uh, Ed whatever. Kemper. Ed Kemper. Watch an interview with him, like, later on, yeah. when he's not performing for the fucking camera. Yeah. When he's, like, telling these stories. This guy could not give less of a fuck right. about the mayhem he has inflicted upon the world. Right. And that is how this, there's no malice, there's no glee, there's no, there's just, like... Yeah, so then this girl, I you know, was driving and he shot her and cut her head off and threw it in the ditch. Like that's like that's it. And that's when in this film, when the guy's talking about how he killed his fucking child, he talks about it in a way that I would tell Liam about how like um, a dog I saw on the street or like a cup of coffee I got. Right. right. It's 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 a it's a weirdly powerful moment in a movie that I don't want to say is shallow because that's like that has like implications that I'm not trying to get across, but. You understand what I'm trying to say? I mean, I don't think it's shallow. But no, no, no. Yeah, it's no, I know what you're saying. It doesn't seem like... It seems like a goofy romp for a lot of it. Yeah, yeah. And then at certain moments you go, ugh, uh, like, uh, for example, when uh, we're shown the flashback of her being abducted. Terrifying. Actually, one of the few alien things I actually was like, well, oh, that's upsetting. <laughs> so that's, a, that's pretty upsetting. Uh, that's upsetting. I think the ending is upsetting. Um... You know, not everything works. the 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 house part is clearly like not the most uh, well directed aspect yeah. of the film. Just him running down a stairway with sand falling in front of the camera. But you know, they're doing the best they can, guys. and that's all that matters. <laughs> uh, I I do want to say real quick the one prop one big problem I have with this movie was mm. the scene in the pool hall where uh, Peter Nicholas right, 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 right. convinces a bunch of black men to murder each other for right. no real reason. Well, okay. The, there's a teeny bit of a reason here, which is that this is like uh, basically a heroin den, and he's decided that this is guy needs to pay for murdering one of his officers. Interesting. But it's pretty clear that it's just a setup for him to use his powers and then realize that's a bad idea. And, you know, I get it. It's 1970, what, six? 76. Larry Cohen's just, you know. Not inclined to think like, hey, it's weird that it's a white man murdering a bunch of black men. But it is weird. It's uncomfortable. And I don't know if it was a conscious choice on his part to make the people he was killing black. Right. But I think the only thing that could have, the only more vulnerable people he could have attacked was if he walked into like a like a brothel full of like black sex workers and killed them. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, his, his intention was to make it Harlem. And so therefore he's like, oh, it's Harlem. They're all black. Yeah, the thing is, Larry. The thing is, Larry. The thing is, Larry. Yeah. No, I agree with you. I mean, I actually think structurally the scene works. I think that we just are at a point where we're like, hey, 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 guy. Yeah. I know you're thinking, well, this is a, I mean, I guarantee he's thinking, not thinking about that because he's thinking of his character who is not. I mean, his character is really like up until this point the only good cop in New York. Yeah. And then this is his flirting with, am I going to be a monster like, you know, 
my my hippie bro is yeah. basically and there's something powerful about that but we are living in a time where we know yo if you're going to dramatize i mean literally dramatize the violence against black bodies by the state only in this way instead of the subtext of all police which is that they are the arm of god and if you don't realize that then you're not paying attention <laughs> you made the subtext text in a way that is more than a little upsetting now Maybe if he were alive, he might say, yeah, it should be upsetting. It's supposed to be one of the most upsetting parts of the movie. But it resonates differently. If it was just a room of people of mixed backgrounds yes. that you believe are criminals, and he murders them all, it's still upsetting. It doesn't have to be. Uh, I mean, maybe some of those men are also Afro-Latino. I don't know. But it's a room of dark bodies being murdered by God white man. It doesn't work. By God white man who is the only good cop in New York. Yeah. It's fucked up. I mean, again, this is about his moral failure. And it's why he, in the end, it's actually why I think he rejects vagina arm it has nothing to do with it being gross it has everything to do with him i i don't think i think it has everything to do with him being like yeah i did the thing that you do and it was awful like you are a monster yeah this isn't who we are this is who you are and i think that's like an important i mean it's the only time he gets to actually exercise some like independent ethical thought because every time before that it's all guilt and then that one moment it's the only ethical choice he makes is no 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 we, you're right. We could conquer the world. We can have babies. We could conquer the world, and we could rule the planet. Only I tried to do the thing that you are enjoying so much, and it was terrible. It's not good. This is not. It's not. I mean, because the attitude of hippie Jesus man is like, this is who we are. Yeah, like, yeah they're yeah. just they exist to serve us. That's what they're here for. Because we're God. And cop man is like, no, that doesn't work. That's not. And, you know, it really should push the question for those of you who are out there with a death of God theology mindset is that, like, shouldn't God have enough ethics to realize that he's doing a bad job and should give up and that he's weird? Yeah. I mean, I think that is part of the implication of the film. Like, that's when when people say it's only I'm like, I don't think the movie's only light. I think Larry is getting at some deep stuff. It's just his style of I mean, again, the stuff is about what he sees as a, you know, mini genocide via cigarettes that he really thinks someone should be, have paid for the cancer that cigarettes cause. That they knowingly inflict unleashed upon the world. Yeah, with no concern, just to make money. He is that upset. That's what the stuff is about. The stuff is also a near drunk Michael Moriarty just prancing around the the woods talking with a man about, named Chocolate Chip Charlie. Yeah, like the Larry Cohen essentially or again Cue the Winged Serpent. I don't even think there is a huge meta idea with Cue the Winged Serpent, but it is both serious ideas and I want to make a Ray Harryhausen film. Those are the two motivations, and that's how Larry always is. I want to make money. I also think this thing is bad. Yeah, and I want to address that. You know, I just again watch any of his black exploitation films. That's there's always the deep thing he's thinking about as a writer that's motivating his writing, but then there's his motivation to be an entertainer who makes money. And he wants both those things at the same time. In reality, I kind of think all those higher ideals, that's how he writes. I don't think he really cares whether the movie is a good medium to get that idea to you. It's just how he writes. He starts with that yeah. as a way to get him to write. you know. But I don't think he's sitting there going, I don't know, guys. I don't think if people got my anti-cigarette message in the stuff. like I don't think he cares if you got it or not. He's just letting you know that's why he did it. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. 
So do you think that God stays in heaven because he too lives in fear of what he's created? <laughs> um, you don't want to know what I think. <laughs> That's a line from a Spy Kids movie. I know, I know. I love that. I love that it's a line from a Spy Kids movie. Spoken by fucking Steve Buscemi. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm sure we'll be covering that soon on um, Greetings, Fellow Kids, a Steve Buscemi podcast. Is that the Cinema Smorgasbord? Yeah. Cool. Good yeah. plug. I know, right? All right. Uh, well, I guess we're going to take a break, and then we're going to talk. <laughs> stop. 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 We'll they be right back they to talk about to know. They don't need to know. <laughs> we'll be right back. Bye. You the agent in charge of the case? That's right. What can I do for you, man? I'm here because I can't live with what I know anymore. Listen, this may sound a little bit crazy, but I know who the God's Hand killer is. What makes you think that? He hadn't even heard me out yet, and already you doubt me. They were raised to obey their father. Go to see Homer. To love him. To trust him. Night, boys. Sleep tight. Don't let those bed bugs bite. Until. Wake up. I've got something to tell you. Hey, what's wrong? There are demons among us. I can see the demons while other people can. I'm scared, Dad. Nothing that crazy could be real. The angel told me that God would be sending weapons. Maybe you just dreamed it. Maybe you're not right in the head. God will be sending a list of the first seven demons. These are people's names. And they'll look like people. They're not. Dad made up this whole thing. Do you understand? Well, if it has to be done, it has to be done. Is that true? Why would I make it up? It's all a big lie. I don't want to run away. You are hiding something from me. What is it you think I'm hiding? When I lay my hands on them, I'll reveal them for what they truly are. I got a pretty good idea of them bodies are. I'll tell. Craziest thing I've heard in a long time. Ah! Check the Rose Garden. I don't believe a word of it. But it's true. Bill Paxton. Those were demons. Why can't you see that? Matthew McConaughey. Tell me the truth. Sometimes truth defies reason. You're crazy! Only demons should fear me. You're not a demon, are you? And we are quote-unquote back. <laughs> talk about 2001's American Psychological Horror <sighs> thrill- Thriller, directed and starring Bill Paxton and co-starring Matthew McConaughey and Powers Booth. Frailty. You know Powers Booth. Yeah. He's a nightmare person. Yeah. Yeah, he's one of those people that, like, I feel like he should stand out to me more, because with a name like Powers Booth, like, I should just know who he is. But, you know, every time I see him in something, I'm like, oh, it's that guy. This is, like, kind of weird. I always get him and (sighs) Stacey Keach mixed up, like, all the time. Stacey Keach has has a, a hair lip, though, right? Yeah, but Powers Booth looks like a fucking evil Muppet. No, I hear what you're saying. They, I, I certainly would cast them in a film as brothers. Absolutely. In fact, the most psychotic, if I was like, what if I need a, a, a trio of psychotic white men who would really just rain terror on everyone? I'd be like, well, we need Stacey Keach, we need Powers Booth, and we need... Uh, Wingshauser. Wingshauser! I knew you were going to be in my brain on that yeah. one. The three of them, they vaguely look alike, and they're all insane. Yes. And they've all killed people. <laughs> I don't have any evidence for that, so don't ask me for it, but... Right. So, frailty is... 
how do I? This is a weird movie that directed by William Paxton, the late great William Paxton. Written by William Paxton. Written by Brent Hanley. Hmm. This is did did Mr. Bill direct anything else? Nothing major. This is the only thing I've seen. I know this is the only thing I've seen that he's directed, but I wasn't, yeah, but I wasn't sure there was other stuff. What a fucking movie to direct. Um, oh, my God. It just came out of nowhere, right? Yeah. So one thing to say, this is from 2001. Yep. Um, as with any movie that is this early in a decade, this feels so 90s. To yes. Me. And I'm sure it took a while to film, and that's part of it. But just watching it, I was like, whoa, getting nailed with that 90s. Here's the thing about this movie, though. This movie... Given the subject matter and given where we still were in the horror genre in 2001, this movie very easily could have made heavy use of a lot of bad horror sure. visual tropes. Right. Like, this movie is ripe for the shitty Jacob's Ladder head shake. Right. Um, the horrible phantoms flash when you know into negative when something bad happens yep. and it does none of that we never see we never see what what uh what bill paxton sees um so basically what this movie is about is bill paxton plays he is just a i think he's a, he's a mechanic and he um he's a widower widower and one day he comes home or no, he doesn't come home. In the middle of the night, he wakes his kids up and he's just like, God gave me a vision where we have been conscripted to fight the forces of darkness upon the earth. There are demons that walk the earth looking like people and we have been entrusted to kill them. And his one son, his younger son, is like, cool, I'm on board. And his older son is like, I need to get the fuck out of here because my father's going to murder people and I'm going to be complicit in it. Yeah. So uh, the story eventually it just turns into... You know, they 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 start kidnapping people. They start killing them, and it just becomes this really um, hellish experience. I mean, it's a it's a deeply unsettling movie because it's uh, the thing that, that that gets me every time is Bill Paxton does such a good job of getting across a man who is clearly in the grips of something he doesn't understand, right, and may or may not want to actually do it, but is just sort of like, I have to do this. Sure. Like, this sucks, but I have to do this. And he is... I mean, I guess spoiler is like, most of this movie, they never take a clear stand on whether or not he's actually um, under the influence of... Well, we didn't talk about the framing device. Oh, yeah. The fr- so the framing device, it's sort of like the movie opens up where uh, a character named Fenton Meeks, played by Matthew McConaughey, visits in the in the present day, visits Powers Booth, who plays like an FBI agent. And he's like, look, there's this serial killer going around called the God's Hand. And he's like, look, my brother Adam is the God's Hand. And I he killed himself and I buried him. And we're going to go find the body. But I want to tell you where he came from. Yeah. Why this is happening. Why this is happening. So, and then the the twist at the end is that, or no, this Matthew McConaughey's character is saying like, "Oh, like my brother, uh, he didn't believe that he did believe in it." 
So basically, uh, <laughs> so the the twist here is getting Justin twisted up here. So let, let's just go ahead and say we're going to spoil it so that we can talk about it in a clear way. Yeah, so yeah, what yeah. the movie starts off with is Matthew McConaughey is claiming to be the brother who doesn't believe and claiming that the younger brother is the one who becomes it's the, the God's hand killer. Is yeah. the God's hand killer. What becomes clear by the end of the film is that it's actually the older brother who has become the God's hand killer, who is not Matthew McConaughey. Yeah. Matthew McConaughey is the younger brother. He has carried on the work of his father to kill demons, and that he has actually killed the God's hand killer. And in fact, none of that really matters. He's here for Powers Booth, who it turns out, is also a bad person on the and not only that this isn't like shared this isn't like this isn't um there's no delusions here it turns out that we don't know if these people are demons or not but it turns out that their father when he laid his hands upon these people could actually tell their sins and and you know right it's revealed that like adam also has that so that's well so yeah so the, the i think what's great about the film okay so let's back up a little bit well, just about the twist, we can say the twist has multiple levels. One, about who Matthew McConaughey is and who the killer is. Yeah. Two, why he's there and what he's going to do. Yeah. And then um, the reveal here is not just that he that they've been killing people and they've been killing these people and what they see about them is real, but to the point where... Because you could also say maybe it's not a God thing, right? Like maybe they're psychic or, you know, like there could be other. But even the claim God is going to protect us and people won't be able to recognize us. It's backed up at the end. All of it is backed up. So the entire thing, and not only that, McConaughey is a sheriff and his wife knows and helps him in doing the thing. Yes. So uh, what is so amazing about the film is that the the reveal is multi-layered. There's actually like four or five things that turned out to be revealed. But before that, even though it's clearly a horrifying story, it's also like kind of like a melancholy story about family. Oh, yeah. And that melancholy story is actually that much more exaggerated when you realize that Matthew McConaughey, as the younger brother, actually understands and empathizes with everything his older brother is going through. That yeah. he's able to tell the story in such a way that's so convincing, it makes the melancholy of the flashback story, which is in a way our main story, that much more poignant, you know, when you realize like, oh, he's not even that brother and he's able to tell the story from that perspective. It's kind of crazy. Yeah. It's an I mean, it's um oh God, this movie has so many amazing like just brilliant moments. Sure. Um, my favorite, the first one I, uh, that I, I think is like, is so well done is when, when Bill Paxton first like walks and it's, he literally walks in the room in the middle of the night. He's like, wake up, wake up. I have to tell you guys something. Let's go downstairs. with to talk about this. And they're like, okay, what's up? And he's like, I had a vision and all this. And the younger brother, of course, is like, cool, whatever. And the older brother's like, all right, I'm going back to bed. And then he tells him, like, straight up, like, no, we're going to do this. And then the next day he wakes up, and the dad's like, all right, guys, time to get up for school. And he's, like, watching his dad, and his dad's like, come on, you're going to be late. And he's like, oh, man, it was just a dream. What a terrible dream. And then, like, they're driving to school, and they're having, like, a good time. And he tell he tells him early on, but we have to keep this secret from everyone. Like, no one else can know. He's like, okay, dad, sure. And as he gets out of the car, the last thing his dad says to him is, remember, don't tell anyone. And then it all just comes, like, 
it wasn't a dream. Right. It's so effective and and nuts. And then it just goes from there. Like he starts bringing these like fucking weapons home that he sees, like an axe and a fucking pipe. And that for the kid, what is crazy about the movie is that if it didn't have the reveal it did, it could be an analogy for an abusive home. Absolutely. Uh, An analogy for growing up with insanely religious parents, uh, but also maybe an analogy for um, any parent who's out of control and your kid has to be the one who steps in. Just very easily could be alcoholism or something. Yeah. Abuse is the most obvious thing, but it doesn't have to be abuse. It could be a gambling addiction, alcoholism, whatever it is, where suddenly you have to be the adult and the pain of that. Like, there's so many moments where he just wants it all to go away. Yeah. But he can't, and he has to step up and do something. So much so that, so um, again, we've already said spoiler. So when the movie sort of climaxes with him having to, maybe having to is not, but making the decision to kill his own father, that's not just dramatically intense. It's emotionally intense. Yeah. You feel for that moment. It's it's one of the few moments that is uh, in film that is both horrifying in sort of a uh, classic horror movie standpoint, but also it's like emotionally, you know, you're just sort of destroyed, like, oh, God, that he had to make the decision. And then that his brother still kills the guy. Now, granted, that takes on a different perspective once we get the reveal, but just in that moment, I was like, oh, God. You know, it's... Even their relationship, as he's they're burying both this horrible person and their father, you know, that interaction is so. I don't know. It kind of made me think about what you were saying uh, earlier about the child performances in Color Out of Space. Yeah, just the idea that they got these. And I mean, not that the kids are amazing. I don't want to lead anyone astray that these are like, you know, amazing young thespians. They're fine. But the role is so hard that they could easily not be fine. Oh, yeah. These kids get credit for doing what they did as well as they did. Right. And they didn't do an amazing job, but they definitely, in a movie where Bill Paxton is dropping bombs upon us, the fact that these kids seemed at all competent next to him is commendable. They're they're believable. Yeah. They're believable. Um, Wow. So when you, I don't know when, what your history is with this movie. I saw this. This was definitely a uh, video store pickup for me. Yeah, this, right? um, I'm trying to think. I want to say I watched this with my dad not long after. Because this movie came out 2001. This was after high school. Yeah, I was in college. I think I was home for the summer and I watched it with some friends. But I, I remember watching it because it was Bill Paxton. Right. And just the idea of it, it you know, was, was compelling. And then when that that twist came along, because again, I the biggest twist for me wasn't who Matthew McConaughey was. Right. The biggest twist for me was that Bill Paxton wasn't, in fact, crazy. Right. Because, it, you know, in retrospect, it's like a lot of the red herrings are sort of like obvious. Um but no, this is this has always been one of those movies that I always like kind of forget about and then someone brings it up and like, "Oh fuck, frailty. That movie is so good." And, you know, not on the level of say something like The Lost Boys where everyone I know who's seen it is like gushing over it, but this is again one of those movies where I don't know anyone who's like frailty. Is that Bill Paxton movie? And I'm not a fan. 
Like everyone I know who's seen this movie enjoys it quite a bit. Um, now, do we know when they started filming this? Only because this is post-contact Matthew McConaughey. You know what I'm saying? Like this is post Matthew McConaughey. I mean, I think this is post the wedding planner Matthew McConaughey. So this is like before. This was like right when he started becoming like. Yeah, you think they filmed this thing with him before he was like the deal? You know what I mean? Like I just feel like it's before Reign of Fire, which was sort of like his kind of actiony whatever. But but you know he. He's the main guy in the wedding planner. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It just seemed like because you were saying like you watched it because of Bill Paxton, and and I and I think that's probably true for me too. But I knew who Matthew McConaughey was. Yeah, like, I, I like watching it was like it was a weird experience. Like I remember thinking at the time, Matthew McConaughey's in this. <laughs> you know, like and in this role, like you know, like. I just wonder about the. Do you think it's just because of who Bill Paxton is? Do you think they started filming early enough that it was like, yeah, of course I'll do this. You know what I mean? It just seems like this comes out in the same year that his rom com turn happens, where he becomes for a while the pigeonhole rom com. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. Part of the reconnaissance is him finally escaping the shadow of the wedding planner. Yeah, really. yeah. Which, by the way, is crazy. But um, I can proudly say I've never seen a single Matthew McConaughey rom-com. I think I've skipped most of them, but I mean, he, you know, he's the guy in that movie. Like, that's when people started thinking, yeah. you know, I mean, not that he wasn't big after Contact, but, but you know, the Contact is a much different role than The Wedding Planner or whatever. So, yeah, I don't know. Anyways, the point is, is that when you said that, like, oh, I watched it probably because of Bill Paxton, I'm like, I might have watched it because of Matthew McConaughey, honestly, just in the sense of like, Oh, here's a uh, not big shelf. So I don't know how the video store was where you lived, but there was like the the main sort of new releases was all the hot stuff. It was all the Hollywood stuff. And then the rest of the shelves, there would still be newer movies, but they'd be like the other things, the horror movies, the genres, the stuff that was like less whatever. So as soon as I saw this on the shelf, no part of me was like, Oh, this is the same as, uh, you know, Jurassic Park or whatever. Seed People. It well, and it, I didn't quite think of it as a seed, but I thought of it as a low budget. This is yeah. a low budget movie, and so I wonder. And you notice uh, the cover of it's been the same cover. It's not a good cover. It's not a good cover. But who's featured prominently? Matthew McConaughey, which leads me to th- believe is that Matthew McConaughey. I thought he was on the cover. Isn't he on the cover? I can't tell if that's him or not. Yo, if he's not on the cover. Yeah, that's Matthew McConaughey. Are you sure? That's one of okay. Well, okay. Is it Powers Booth? <laughs> is it Bill fucking Paxton? It is not Bill Paxton or Powers Booth. Therefore, ergo. It's Matthew McConaughey. And I think you only put him so prominently because literally the wedding planner came out a few months before this did. So. It's like the guy for how Mark, Mark Hamill's on the cover and he's in the movie for like three seconds. <laughs> I mean, he's an important part of the movie, but it is funny that he's like the only face on the cover because at that point they must have known, oh my gosh, yeah, it all went downhill from here, actually. You could really argue like uh, 
you know, 2001, his career goes two directions. Frailty, the wedding planner. Mm. Only one of them is going to make money. So I guess I don't. Oh, although he was briefly in 13 Conversations About One Thing. That also came out in 2001. Interesting. Man, I don't remember him in 13 Conversations About One Thing, though. Anyway, sorry to get distracted by That's Hollywood. Okay. Hollywood stuff, y'all. But I, I think it's interesting because when this film came out, A, I was super deep into Jesus stuff. So this was like a whoa sort of experience for me because of its relationship with religion and the questions around religion and and sort of what the movie has to say about that. I, I think that even though these people are affirmed in the sense of like the twist is that what they're seeing is real. Yeah. That doesn't make it any less menacing. I think the ending with him and the Americana of it all and him with his wife there and he's the sheriff... No part of that is like, oh, guys, it's a happy ending. He's really serving God. Because oh, it okay. makes you think who else out there is a fucking demon. Right. Uh, but I also don't think, like, I, it doesn't feel heroic to me at the end. I mean, I think it's telling that he, with the Powers Booth character, it's horrifying what he does. He kills, his, he kills his mom. Yeah, yeah. But it's a little less compelling than with his dad when it was the guy with the children. That was like, I just think when it comes to sympathy from your audience i think creepy child toucher guy you're like yeah that guy needed to get chopped yeah 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 or the guy who hits his wife yeah that guy needed to get chopped powers booth it's like oh why don't you kill that nice old lady but i think american audiences are generally like there might have been a reason she looks like she's annoying <laughs> you don't know maybe that was uh, what did she say to make him kill her <laughs> yeah you know what i'm saying like it's a little less sympathetic in a way you know yeah um so i uh, Again, not that I'm saying you should kill your mom, but what I'm saying is... Um, Thank you for clarifying. Right, right. But what I'm saying is, I don't think the movie ends at a point where you're like, well, I guess Matthew McConaughey is a fucking superhero. He serves the Lord with his axe. No, I mean, it, it doesn't even... Uh, and again, I'll say this to you. This does not feel... There's something about this movie that is above and beyond a Judeo-Christian... Judeo-Christian interpretation right. of god they, they never talk about jesus it's not a movie about jesus there is something about this movie that is more like and maybe it's just because i got f paul wilson on the brain because i'm writing that piece about him there is something about this that is that is it is not god telling him to do this it's that he is some kind of antenna for a higher power that just happens to see more than he does and is just sort of like sure we have shared interests sure why don't you do this for me Sure. I mean, it's it, it's definitely a force. It's not that they're... Because the plot could be... And this would be compelling. Maybe we'll write this screenplay. They could be both psychic and psychotic. So that, like, they have psychic powers, but because of their belief system and that they are disconnected from reality, they're like, well, we must murder these people that we can see their sins, so we must murder yeah. them. Because of the video stuff and the fact that no one recognizes him, you know there is a power of some kind. But the idea that that power is the Jesus of Bill Paxton's youth that he's clearly connecting with, um, no evidence for that per se. No particular reason no. To, to, to feel that. The movie doesn't affirm that for you. Um, but it also doesn't not affirm it. I, I don't think it's weird that when I later, so this is 2001, this comes out, right? I'm still in Jesus College. Yes. And I watch it with friends. And then I bring it to Jesus College like, guys, guys, this movie Frailty fucked me up. We're going to watch this movie Frailty. People, yeah, sure, whatever. 
funny enough, not all of my Jesus College friends appreciated watching Frailty. Some of them were bummed on it. Weird. And I remember thinking like, huh, that's weird. Interesting. That's weird. I wonder why. Um, Because I think the movie also does leave open the possibility of like, yeah, God is terrible. This vengeance thing that Matthew McConaughey is doing, pretty in line yeah. with the uh, the God of the at least of uh, of uh, certain parts of Scripture, maybe not all. So, like, you know, it's believable that maybe the Yahweh is like, yeah, a random Southern guy. You should go chop some people. Be my up. fucking hitman. Yeah, I mean, it could also be the devil. I mean, this is the other thing, right? Like, we always associate the devil with with the with the child toucher. Technically the devil's role is to hurt those people so technically he could be serving the devil i didn't think about that we always want to make the devil the portrayer of suffering uh because that's what it's beca- he's become for us yeah but scripture no he's the accuser technically he would be the one like all right here's the kill list for today these were real jackoffs. you gotta kill them then make I them get suffer them. make them then suffer. i get them yeah because that's technically you know in, in, in the scriptural view is that uh, most humans are actually on the side of. Uh, this is gonna sound bad, but just go with me here, guys. The scriptural view for a lot of scripture is that technically most humans are in league with the child toucher. That you don't touch children, but whatever you do is just a slightly less worse version of what he does. Yeah. And so then the thesis of the movie would be: these are the humans whose wrongs are so bad that therefore you should chop their head off. And other humans, they can go for a chopping, but they're not quite bad enough to deserve a chopping. That's the that's technically the scriptural view of the. I'm whole saying, thing. but there is there are the few scenes when when he, when he kills when Bill Paxton kills right. what's his face 100%. and he like loses his shit. He's 100%. like, I killed a good man, uh, and then and then later when when um McConaughey shakes that uh, one FBI agent's hand, he just says to him like, "You're a good man," like. So I do think that there are there is a concept. I don't think the idea of the the sort of the gate is narrow idea right. applies to this. Right. All I'm saying is he could be serving the devil, and he that could would be. be it. Wouldn't fit our current idea of the devil, but it would fit technically an idea of the devil. Yeah, an idea that we've abandoned, but makes a lot more sense than the one we have, which is like, I'm a red horned guy who really likes fucking. Hello. Why? Oh, by the way, why do we associate the devil with fucking? Because technically, if he hates humans, then he would be like, can you all please actually stop fucking? Because the more you fuck, the more of you there are. Does he hate humans, though? Again, that seems to be the other thing we say. It's like he hates them, but he also wants to like seduce them and get their souls. The whole winning soul, but we don't have to get on this tangent. All I'm going to suggest to everyone is the classical idea of Satan just going around, just tempting everyone so he can get these souls. It's, first of all, not very efficient. Can we just say that? It's yeah. a pretty inefficient way to get something. Second of all, why the fuck would he care? It's just more work. Wouldn't exactly. He, wouldn't he just be like, you know what, guys? Let me tell you about this other dude. I guess not because he wants to win, but it's never clear in any of these things how he wins. No, he doesn't. We know how it ends. But let's say in theory, you want to have a struggle where he thinks at least that he could win. He can't win. He is an angel. He has no free will. In theory, let's say he could win. He's the only one who has free will, so he could win. How does... Getting the human, like, there's no, there's no one has ever come up with thinking. And then once he's got all the souls, 
he turns them into big monsters he sends to fight. <laughs> you know what I mean? You didn't watch the later seasons of Supernatural, I say. Oh, well, there you go. In general, the thing doesn't work. It's a bad system. It doesn't make any sense. It's almost like it's made up. Well, there you go. Here's my point about frailty, though, which is that um, you would think with the movie going, turns out Bill Paxton and his little kid, they were right the whole time. And the character you were empathizing with, he's a demon. He's a bad dude. And they were he should have killed him in the first place. Yeah. From the beginning, he should have killed him because he turned out to be a serial killer. Do they make it clear? I didn't catch that. Do they make it clear that the older brother is a demon? Oh, yeah. I mean, he's on the list. He, well, okay. They make it clear. They don't clarify what demon means. They make it clear that um, the father knew at least according to the story that Matthew McConaughey is telling, which is our only source of the story. Yeah. The father was told by God, your son is on the list. And and Bill Paxton's character ignored God, and that's why he's dead. Now, oh. could this be a justification that Matthew McConaughey has made up in his head because he's trying to live in his father's footsteps, and he needs his father to be... His father's one sin is loving his son too much. It's very self-justifying. Yeah. Yeah, the f- movie doesn't clarify that. I don't think it has to. But what the movie does do is basically say all this, the whole time you've been thinking these people are crazy people and the horror for most audiences is, wow, what horrible monsters. Then it turns out they're right. The movie doesn't go, see, they are right, so maybe you should go kill some people for the Lord. That's <laughs> not how the movie ends. The movie ends as ominously as before. you are, no, just because they are correct. Instead of being like, Oh man, I guess, uh, I guess, uh, yeah, well, I guess it's cool to murder people for the Lord. Yes, Matthew McConaughey's wa- yeah. out there watching over us. Instead, the movie ends and you think, fuck, am I on the list? Exactly. What did, what did I do that's going to get my head chopped off? God damn it. Like, I just think it's really interesting to have it affirm the what we thought were delusions, and then that doesn't take away the heart. It actually no. amplifies it. Yeah, again, because from even from like my simple viewpoint was. It's the thing that a lot of horror movies don't touch on, and and it that is, um, and this is a weird place to draw it from, but one of my favorite lines from the film Dog Soldiers is when one character tells another character, like, even if you get out of this, even if we make it out of here alive, yeah, you are every night over the rest of your life, you're going to be wondering what's out there, and I think that's kind of what the horror is about. This movie is, even if there is like a benevolent cosmic force that is that is out there using these people to take care of us the fact remains that there is the implication is that there is a uh malevolent force sure and that these things are real and that in and of itself is kind of like uh unsettling because it's, it just makes you th- sure. you know it just again the implications are there of like oh fuck well these things are still out there he's still out there killing them that's still terrifying I do though no I do though think the film is never quite clear about are they actual demons or are they just bad people. Yeah, well yeah because you know it's it, it, it was demons was this message being filtered through Bill Paxton's right sort of uh impotent religiosity. Right. You know and it's and to be fair you could read the whole movie as the only narrator is Matthew McConaughey. So yeah. um 
maybe he's uh, the thing is the thing that is the most affirming of Matthew McConaughey's bullshit though is that he's got the power that they can't see him on the video. He's got the touch. They don't recognize. He's got the power. They don't recognize him in person. So yeah. clearly something's on his side. Could it be all psychic? Yeah, I, I think there are people who watch this movie who probably go, "It's all psychic." You know, this isn't. A, you know, what it's the whatever. But I I choose to believe. Uh, funny enough that the the movie really is ending on the just because these people are serving some higher power is not a source of comfort. It's no. actually much more upsetting. No, there's there's nothing. And that they have a rose garden filled with bodies. With fucking dead bodies. And no one's noticed. Yeah. No one's noticed. Like, man, it's weird. They, there's, there's, there's all these holes being dug and not new rose bushes. It's just interesting. Weird. Also, it smells like a fucking graveyard. <laughs> you know, I, I again, maybe this is just because I've spent the last like couple weeks like up to my neck in writing about F. Paul Wilson's fiction, but you know, it's sort of like people like to think of like they believe in God because they want to have like the big brother or the cosmic daddy or the which is fucking terms I detest. But when you really think about it, when you really sit down and think about it, the idea that there are forces out there greater than us is not comforting at all. No, it's actually horrifying. It's terrifying. That's the basis of Lovecraft's fiction. And, you know, I'm not going to sit here and pretend that um, this movie is Lovecraftian in any way, but you're right. There is no... um, There is no certain thing that connects us to Judeo-Christian ideology. This guy's just saying we were chosen by God, quote unquote. And that could be, that could just be him filter. Yeah, it could just be him filtering it through his own personal beliefs. And that's fucking frightening. Could be fucking aliens. We don't know. Yeah. I just made that as a joke, but the more I think about it, it could be. It's like The Hidden with Kyle MacLachlan. Stop. I do love The Hidden. It is a great movie. It's very good. Oh, well, I think that's everything about Frailty, other than hopefully you've seen it. And if for whatever reason you listen to this whole spoilery discussion, uh, you should still watch it. I think I just, just. I, I do want to say though that just watching this movie made me just so deeply melancholy about Bill Paxton and just yeah. made me miss him so much. Yeah. Because he's just so fucking good in everything that he's in. Yeah. Has the, the one reason I would ever want to get a Corvette would be because of Bill Paxton. You know why? Why? Because the vet gets him wet. Oh, my God. Um, I I will say uh, there's a couple of there's a couple of like editing choices here that feel very 90s okay so I do think like if you're someone who's allergic to 90s things I can see someone being not in love with the directing here Um, but even then they're just small moments I think what you can really focus on as far as what Bill Baxter bringing to the table is his direction of actors who are all very good. Yeah. I think a lot of his camera placement is very effective. Mm-hmm. And I think the pacing of the story, like this could get really meandered in the flashback of it all, and it never does. The relationship between the flashback and what's happening with Matthew McConaughey and Powers Booth, it's never feels tenuous. It feels connected. Yeah. You know, and, and you believe he wants to tell the story. It's not like one of those things where it's like, let me tell you a story. And then you see the flashback and go, there's no way he fucking said all that. Like, there's no way. Why would he say all that shit? Like, yeah. It doesn't make any sense. This movie, it makes sense how it works as a flashback, yeah. in my mind. Yeah. Uh, so, yes, I think that's all we're going to say about frailty. So that means that's the end of the episode. Thank you guys for listening. Uh, if you want to contact us on social media, we are all on Instagram and Twitter at TheHarbiz666. 
Uh, I am on social media as on both Twitter and Instagram as RepairmanXJack. I don't know what Liam's on there as. Leo Danello at fucking Instagram, whatever. If you enjoyed this episode, which I hope you did, feel free to give us a review on iTunes. And remember to rate, review, subscribe, and download, download, download. You can head to www.cinepunks.com to find more episodes of Har Business and lots of other great episodes of other great podcasts. <laughs> um, we just added a new one, uh, Fat Girl Hacks. It's very good. Uh, there's Cinema Smorgasbord, Wine and Cheese, Black Sun Dispatches, Cinepunks, Evil Eye, Tomb of Ideas, a bunch of other shit. So, um, yeah. Thanks again to our Patreon subscribers. Thanks to LVAC. And thank you for listening. So until next time, Pat Toomey sucks. Yeah. Bye. Anyone hear us? This is Trey Lawson. And I'm James Hickson. Anyone can hear this broadcast. We need your help. We've been kidnapped and imprisoned in a tomb by this creepy old undertaker named Mr. Gravely. And he's forcing us to review his collection of Marvel horror comics. Stuff like Tomb of Dracula. Werewolf by Night. Man-Thing. Ghost Rider. And so much more. If you can hear this, please contact our families. Tell them we can be found at... You can find James and Trey every other Wednesday at the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. See you there, Tomb Believers. Ha 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 ha!